you take a seed, you plant it, you grow it, you dry it, you roll it, you smoke it. You take a seed, you plant it, you grow it, you dry it, you roll it, you smoke it, and it goes down smooth. Hey! Spanning the continent to bring you the truth about cannabis and marijuana law reform. I smoke pot and I like it a lot. The Russ Belleville Show. The voice of the marijuana nation. It's like marijuana ought to be legalized. Good people smoke marijuana. Now, here's your host, Radical Russ Belleville. It is Tuesday, February 7th, 2017, and it's got to be 420 somewhere in the world. Stay tuned. We got two hours of marijuana news, views, and reviews you can use for the cannabis community. We start off with the marijuana news coming up next in four minutes in 20 seconds. We've got some cannabis focus. We're going to look at the cannabis Congressional Caucus today in drug war data mining. We've got some more news coming to you from Rhode Island. We've got a look back at the 1972 Schaefer Commission report with Normals founder Keith Strop and a radical rant on once again former drug czar John P. Walters issuing some warnings to the marijuana industry. Plus, we'll come back in hour two for Toker Talk Radio and take your calls at 650 Legal MJ. But now, the news. Covering the latest headlines in consumer cannabis, medical marijuana, and industrial hemp. Now your marijuana headlines in 4 minutes and 20 seconds. This is Cannabis News. This is your Cannabis News for Tuesday, January, February 7th, 2017. Pardon me. The Hemp Industries Association, the leading nonprofit trade association consisting of hundreds of hemp businesses, has filed a motion to hold the Drug Enforcement Administration in contempt of court for violating an unchallenged longstanding order issued by the U.S. Court of Appeals in San Francisco, prohibiting the agency from regulating hemp food products as Schedule I controlled substances. In December of 2016, the DEA, in conjunction with the North Dakota Department of Agriculture, indicated to Healthy Oil Seeds LLC that a shipment of the company's hemp products made from hemp grown under the state's hemp pilot program and Congress's Agricultural Act of 2014, the Farm Bill, would require a permit from the DEA, as the hemp protein powder and hemp seed oil food items were subject to DEA regulation, quote, because industrial hemp is a Schedule One controlled substance under the Federal Controlled Substances Act, end quote. The Federal Drug Enforcement Administration has pulled the medicine prescribing certificates of two Colorado doctors after those physicians had their state licenses suspended in Colorado over medical marijuana recommendations. The doctors, Gentry Dunlop and Janet Dean, were two of five Colorado physicians whose licenses the state medical board suspended last summer, alleging that the doctors wrote improperly large numbers of medical marijuana recommendations authorizing high plant counts. The doctors were each accused of recommending that hundreds of patients be allowed to grow or possess more than the standard six marijuana plants per patient. The doctors say their suspensions were arbitrary and that all of their recommendations conform to law and policy. Prosecutors in Minnesota filed felony charges Monday against two former officials from one of the state's licensed medical marijuana manufacturers for allegedly shipping marijuana oil to a subsidiary facility in New York. Minnesota and New York have both legalized medical marijuana programs, and parent company Virio Health cultivates and sells the medication in both states. 
but shipping products across state lines still violates both state and federal laws. Complaint filed in Wright County Court alleges that two officials who no longer work for Minnesota Medical Solutions, the company's Minnesota branch, collaborated in December 2015 to ship more than five kilograms of concentrated marijuana oil from Minnesota to New York, where the company faced a product shortfall ahead of New York's January 2016 start to legal sales. Two Maryland companies say the state is wrongly refusing to explain why they were abruptly bumped off of a list of 15 finalists to be licensed to grow medical marijuana in the state. Green Thumb Industries and Maryland Cultivation and Processing have asked a Baltimore judge to decide whether the state is abusing the deliberative process privilege, which allows internal deliberations among members of a state commission to be kept secret. Assistant Attorney General Heather Nelson cited that rule in more than 80 objections to attorneys' questions during the January deposition of Deborah Moran, the only person on the Maryland Medical Cannabis Commission subcommittee who voted against replacing the two companies with others ranked lower. Both the Georgia House and Senate are seeking changes to a state law that allows people with certain diseases to possess cannabis oil. They just don't agree on the details. Lawmakers in 2015 passed a bill that legalized the possession of medical cannabis to people with certain medical conditions. But Georgia law doesn't allow production of the oil, and patients complained that getting it from other states is both expensive and risky. Representative Alan Peak, a Republican from Macon, hopes to expand the list of qualifying conditions that allow patients to legally access medical cannabis. Peak's bill would include post-traumatic stress, AIDS, HIV, chronic pain, and autism, and would also remove some restrictions on patients with cancer, multiple sclerosis, and Lou Gehrig's disease. State Senate members are pushing to reduce the level of THC permissible in cannabis oil from 5% to 3%. New medical marijuana regulations proposed by state health officials would block patients from timely and affordable access to medication, restrict physicians in treating their patients, and potentially undercut the development and distribution of quality medicine, an overflow crowd told the Florida Department of Health officials Tuesday morning in Fort Lauderdale. Hundreds turned out for the public hearing. This has been your Cannabis News for Tuesday, February 7th, 2017. I'm Russ Belville. In the interest of fair and balanced journalism, the Russ Belleville Show presents the anti-drug public service announcement of the day. My brother is gone, though I saw him today. His eyes made of glass, his skin was all gray. I wanted to see my brother, but someone else answered the door. My heart fell apart, it wasn't him anymore. I looked into my brother's eyes, so lost and far removed. His callous smirk and twisted speech was every nightmare proved. I prayed from dusk till dawn. I love him with all my heart. And now my brother is gone. I just saw him today. Meth destroys. The high is a lie. This has been the Russ Belleville Show's anti-drug public service announcement of the day. Exclusively on RadicalRust.com. New beginner guitars and banjos are often constructed much better than ones built before your time. Why struggle? Get a new instrument or fix the old one. The trusted professionals at the Fingerboard Extension will evaluate your instrument for free. Repairs are priced for people who work for a living. Stop by the Fingerboard Extension downtown Corvallis at 120 Northwest 2nd Street today or check out its inventory on the web at fingerboardextension.com. You're not high. 
You're listening to the Russ Belleville Show. This was the largest audience to ever witness an inauguration, period. All right. Maybe you're high, too. Warning. Hits taken on this show are larger than they appear. Do not try this at home. These people are professionals. Or at least they pay me to say that. You're a loony. A public service message from the Rust Belleville Show. The world of cannabis is evolving at a frenetic pace. The Russ Belleville Show gets behind the headlines to take a deeper look at breaking news in our Cannabis Focus. Today in the Cannabis Focus, we want to take a look at the United States Congress, the 115th Congress, and how it may be reacting to both the Trump administration and the continued development of state legal marijuana. The Cannabis reports on a newly formed Congressional Cannabis Caucus, a bipartisan caucus of Congress people who are going to be pushing for these bills to reform our federal laws to better comport with state marijuana legalization, both adult use and medical marijuana legalization. Uh, the uh, co-chair of this uh, caucus and one of the co-creators of the idea, I'm proud to say, is my representative. Earl Blumenauer, a representative who's uh, the third district of Oregon, right, Portland, he says, quote, this Congress is going to be a little better than the last Congress, and last Congress was better than the one before that. It's very interesting watching the momentum build, end quote. The co-chairs of the caucus include Representative Blumenauer, Democrat from Oregon, Representative Jared Polis, Democrat from Colorado, Representative Dana Rohrabacher, Republican from California, and Representative Don Young, Republican from Alaska. And they are working to add more members uh, of Congress to the Congressional Cannabis Caucus. Uh, Representative Polis said, quote, I'm more hopeful than ever that we can move legislation like the Regulate Marijuana Like Alcohol Act and move the substance entirely from the Controlled Substances Act. So that would be, of course, our dream is to have marijuana removed from the Controlled Substances Act, you know, like alcohol. Now, the four members of the caucus are people who have long, been longtime supporters of marijuana reform, even before their states managed to legalize. There are more members of Congress, though, that I believe should be joining this cannabis caucus. I would be very shocked if... Representative Steve Cohen from uh, Tennessee wasn't joining the caucus. Now, uh, I guess I should check to see whether he still has a seat in the Congress. Uh, I'm not exactly sure. Maybe one of the folks in the chat room can look that up for me. Uh, but any of the representatives from the states that have legalized marijuana should be joining this Congressional Cannabis Caucus. And that means we've got, what, 53 representatives in the state of California alone who are representing a state that has decided, whether they like it or not, the state itself has decided that marijuana use should be legal for adults. All those members should be joining. All the members of the Oregon delegation, five representatives, should be joining this caucus, although I know Greg Walden, our, our sole Republican representative. There's nine representatives in Washington state that should be joining this. There, Well, Don Young's the one representative from Alaska, so we got 100% of Alaska in 
Cannabis Caucus. What about Nevada's representatives, Massachusetts, Maine, the rest of the Colorado delegation? There is no legitimate reason why they should not be joining this Cannabis Caucus and adding some power to the marijuana industry's voice in our nation's capital. Now, this is just one bill, the uh, Polis bill, the Regulate Marijuana Like Alcohol Act, our dream bill to finally take marijuana out of Schedule 1, is just one bill that should be refiled. Uh, In the last two years, there's been like 25 of these bills that have been filed. But as of Monday, there are just three bills currently filed in the 115th Congress. The first one is H.R. 331. It's called the State's Medical Marijuana Property Rights Protection Act. Barbara Lee, the Democrat from California, has sponsored this act. It prevents civil asset forfeiture for property owners of state-sanctioned medical marijuana facilities. And speaking of uh, uh, asset forfeiture, of course, you know this technique by which law enforcement steals the property and cash of citizens who are innocent until proven guilty based on the legal theory that their property committed a crime. That's right. The property is what's being charged here. And uh, it can be seized in most states can be seized without any sort of criminal conviction. Now, there have been a few states especially recently that have passed laws that say you must get a criminal conviction first before you can take someone's stuff, before proven guilty. But the uh, H.R. 331, uh, Barbara Lee's, uh, Representative Lee's uh, state's Medical Marijuana Property Rights Protection Act would at least provide some protection from federal forfeiture for those state-sanctioned medical marijuana providers. Another bill that's been proposed is H.R. 714, the Legitimate Use of Medicinal Marijuana Act, or LUMA. This is sponsored by Representative H. Morgan Griffith, the Republican from Virginia, and it would move marijuana to Schedule 2 on the Controlled Substances Act and would provide that no provision of that act or the Food and Drug Act could prohibit the prescription, recommendation, use, transport, possession, manufacture, or distribution of marijuana under state law where it's legal. So this Legitimate Use of Medical Marijuana Act puts marijuana on Schedule 2, but it doesn't automatically end its prohibition in the states that are still prohibiting it. It would still be a Schedule 1 substance in, say, Idaho right, or Oklahoma. Those states could then decide what they want to do. Now, I believe you move marijuana down to Schedule 2, and you're going to see a lot of states that are going to move marijuana out of criminal prohibition. For many of them, it's been, well, it's illegal federally, and they just go along with it. I think we move it to Schedule 2, a lot of states would move on that. There are those of us in the community that are concerned that a move to Schedule 2 is what the people in the pharmaceutical industry want, and that a movement to Schedule 2 could portend the end of what we know as whole plant medical marijuana in a lot of these states. That's a discussion for another time, but this is a legitimate federal bill that would make things better in the long run. Finally, the third bill that's been proposed so far is H.R. 715. This is the Compassionate Access Act, also sponsored by Representative H. Morgan Griffith of Virginia. This would provide for the rescheduling of marijuana, the medicinal use of marijuana in accordance with state law, and the exclusion of cannabidiol from the definition of marijuana. Now, this is great. This would not only reschedule marijuana, and it doesn't say to which schedule. If you were asking me, it would be unscheduled. If it has to go on a schedule, it should be five. But uh, that would be better than where it's at in Schedule 1. But this other part of taking CBD out of the definition of marijuana 
makes it an unscheduled substance, no longer a controlled substance, no longer on the, in the act. And that would uh, facilitate much greater research and far greater usage of the non-psychoactive constituent of cannabis. Of course, there will be other uh, acts and amendments that will be proposed. The Rohrabacher Farr Amendment, uh, the medical marijuana amendment, this is the one that prohibits the U.S. Department of Justice from spending any money to interfere with state legal marijuana operations. Now, as it was originally written, it only protected the medical marijuana states. And there's some confusion as to whether or not the legalized states would also be protected because it was written in a way that said the states that have passed marijuana laws in Alaska and California and you know listed all the states, would that cover all the marijuana laws or just the medical ones? We have to look a little deeper into the amendment and see how it's written this year. Now, there had been a report in Politico written by James Higdon that uh, Speaker Ryan had forbade the use of any sort of budgetary amendments to go after issues of abortion, guns, gay rights, or marijuana. I've not found any other source that has corroborated that. And I did speak to John Hudak about this in Virginia when I saw him. And uh, he is dubious about that, about whether that's actually true. So perhaps there will be a Rohrabacher Farr medical marijuana amendment coming up uh, in the next spending bill. We've also got the Carers Act that many of us are hoping can get some traction. This one, of course, is the one that would uh, allow for banking in the uh, marijuana industry. Don't have to be cash only. Uh, would also allow for veterans to have access to medical marijuana through the VA in the states where it's legal, not, you know, not Oklahoma or wherever. And also something to deal with the IRS 280 issue. There's a state's rights to medical marijuana act that will probably be revived as well. This is one that would uh, basically codify the Rohrabacher Farr Amendment into law. Rather than having to pass it every year as part of this appropriations bill, it would just make it federal law that the federal government is going to keep its hands off when it comes to the states that have passed medical marijuana laws. The final thing that the Cannabis Caucus is going to be uh, taking a look at is the possible impact of the Trump administration and, of course, Attorney General nominee Jeff Sessions, who looks like he's cruising toward confirmation. Uh, nobody is really sure what's going to happen here. President Donald Trump has indicated that he values states' rights. He says he's 100% behind medical marijuana. But we've got to remember that's what in the, in, the, in the definition of what he thinks medical marijuana is. Now, we think medical marijuana is, hey, I get to grow a plant and use its buds. He might think medical marijuana is you go to a pharmacy, see a doctor, get a prescription for a cannabidiol pill. So don't read too much into that. The nomination of Jeff Sessions as attorney general is far scarier in this respect, as Jeff Sessions is a noted opponent of marijuana legalization. He famously said good people don't smoke marijuana. He famously said he thought the KKK was a decent organization until he found out that some of them smoked pot. Uh, this is a guy who has said that the federal government needs to be serious about the threat that marijuana can pose to our young people. Now, in his confirmation hearings, he's walked back a little bit. He's been a little bit noncommittal and even said some good things about the Justice Department's so-called coal memorandum. But folks, I'm telling you, things aren't looking good. And when we get to the radical rant at the end of the show of this first hour, uh, I'll tell you a little bit more what I've discovered 
when it comes to how the drugs are may shake out in a Trump administration. I know nothing. Nothing. All right. Well, that sound tells us that it's 20 after the hour, and that means it's 420 in Denver, Colorado. Time for us to take our union-mandated safety briefing. We'll be back. Smoke them if you got them. And when we return, we've got some drug war data mining from the Ocean State. The International Cannabis Business Conference comes to San Francisco, California on February 16th and 17th, 2017. The ICBC San Francisco, Northern California's first business-to-business event since the recent historic election, will bring together top state regulators and industry leaders to discuss permits, business models, and opportunities within the newly enacted laws and landscape. Of course, the ICBC also famously offers some of the best cannabis industry networking, leveraging our worldwide following to connect wholesalers, brands, distributors, investors, and strategic partners. And don't forget to come early for our VIP reception and stay late for our legendary after party. Join us for the longest continuously running cannabis business conference in California at the Hilton San Francisco Union Square, the one and only International Cannabis Business Conference. Visit internationalcbc.com for tickets today. You're listening to the Russ Belleville Show. I don't drink, I don't smoke pot, but I drink and I smoke pot. And I will tell you that there is a huge difference between marijuana and alcohol. You can find Radical Russ online everywhere. Warning. It's taken on this show are larger than they appear. Do not try this at home. These people are professionals. <coughs> or at least they pay me to say that. Where'd you learn that, Cheech? Drug school. A public service message from the Russ Belleville Show. the end of adult cannabis prohibition is easy because we have facts science reason compassion evidence truth and logic on our side it's even easier when researchers catalog it all for us learn how to gather the facts on marijuana use arrests seizures rehabs drug tests and more on this edition of drug war data mining Today in the Drug War Data Mines, we're taking a look at the nation's smallest state by size. That would be 1,212 square miles that make up Rhode Island and the Providence Plantations. By the way, that's the full name of the state. Longest state name in the United States, Rhode Island. And the don't know that. Of course I do. Uh, anyway, Rhode Island uh, is one of the states that has medical marijuana, has had it since 2006, but Rhode Island is also one of the 26 states that do not have any form of citizen initiative. They don't have a way of writing their own laws. They've got to depend on the legislature to do it for them. Now, many observers have predicted that Rhode Island, Vermont, these would be among the first states that would legislatively legalize marijuana. And that's a great thing, although how they think marijuana should be legalized versus what we think could be a little closer. Uh, they we're pretty far apart on this one. We'll talk about that in a second. But uh, the news here for the drug war data mines is a new poll 
coming out of public policy polling that shows 59% of voters in the ocean state support marijuana legalization with just 36% opposed. (laughs) Senator Joshua Miller is a Democrat from Cranston. He said, quote, Rhode Island has the opportunity to become the third New England state to regulate marijuana for adult use. And, quote, he continued by adding, quote, the results of this poll confirm that our constituents want us to follow the same path as Massachusetts and Maine. Now, Senator Miller is joined by Representative Scott Slater, a Democrat from Providence, in introducing what they call the Cannabis Regulation Control and Taxation Act. Representative Slater said, quote, A strong and growing majority of voters support our proposal to regulate marijuana. Our job is to represent the people of this state, and their position on this issue is pretty clear. It's time to replace the senseless policy of marijuana prohibition with a sensible policy of regulation, end quote. Now, the uh, 59% support uh, statewide for marijuana legalization uh, is found even as you drill down into the different counties and areas throughout uh, that 1,212 square miles of Rhode Island. The lowest you find is a 53% support in North Kingstown and a high of 70% in the Burlville, Gloucester area. So uh, anywhere from 53 to 70% support, depending on where you ask in Rhode Island. The group behind uh, advocacy for marijuana legalization in Rhode Island is called Regulate Rhode Island. Their director is named Jared Moffat, and he was there with Senator Miller and Representative Slater at the State House in Providence, where they announced the polling results. He said, quote, most Rhode Islanders recognize prohibition has failed and seem to view regulating marijuana as a no-brainer. Regulation better protects young people, improves public health and safety, and creates more economic opportunities for workers and entrepreneurs in our state. No matter how you look at it, this is clearly a smart path for us to take. Lawmakers would be wise to follow the will of their constituents. End quote. So, great news. 59% support in a poll, no opposition anywhere in the state. Uh, About one out of three people opposed. That's all you got. It looks like it would be a no-brainer to pass legalization in Rhode Island. The problem I have is the legalization they're proposing. Now, I'm not against it. I support any movement forward on legalization, but come on, Rhode Island, you can do better than this. This Cannabis Regulation Control and Taxation Act would allow adults 21 and older to possess one ounce of marijuana. All right, look, that's pretty similar to what we get in most of the states, right? One ounce. You get two and a half in uh, Maine. You get two in Washington, D.C., but all right, one ounce. We can understand that. But here's the problem. Here's the other part that's the problem. It would allow you to grow One mature marijuana plant in an enclosed locked space. One. (laughs) One plant. You thought us here in Oregon, we were all bitching about four. There's no way you can run a garden on four plants. These guys, one plant. Well, first of all, let me tell you, Rhode Island lawmakers, you know what you're going to get with that kind of law? One big freaking plant. (laughs) You're going to see these massive 20 foot trees, man. These ideas, and of course, the reason they have to put these stupid limits on one plant is they don't want the black market growers to come in and start growing a whole bunch and then selling black market weed. What they don't understand is if you let everybody grow more weed and you legalized it everywhere around you, 
that is the more effective way to reduce the black market cultivation. And it's going to be a hard thing to show these folks because in the short run, as you legalize, and it's still illegal in New York and Chicago and Atlanta and all these other places, when you first legalize in the legal places, yeah, we're going to be shipping that weed out of state to get more money for it. Supply and demand, man, profit motivation. The only way you kill that is to legalize in New York, in Chicago, in Atlanta, in Dallas, in all these other places. Legalize nationwide. President Obama was correct. This situation's untenable. You cannot have a hodgepodge blanket kind of patchwork of different marijuana laws because all that does is create the incentivization for the black market to thrive. And that does a disservice to legalization because then people will say, oh, look, see, we legalized and look at the terrible thing that happened. Black market went out of control. No, black market's out of control now. You're just beginning to see it because now there's legal marijuana. And another bad part of this CRCTA in Rhode Island, 23% excise tax on top of the state's 7% sales tax. (laughs) 30% taxation on marijuana. And again, do you want to eliminate the black market or not? 30% tax ain't going to do it. All right, stay tuned. We're back with a history lesson. Keith Strzok on the Schaefer Commission Report of 1972. This is the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. The Russ Belleville Show is proudly sponsored by the Marijuana Business Association. The MJBA, called by NBC News the Cannabis Chamber of Commerce, is the fastest-growing business association in the fastest-growing industry in America. I've been working with the MJBA for years, and I personally invite you to join the MJBA. MJBA also publishes the popular MJ Headline News on Facebook and the MJNewsNetwork.com and Marijuana Channel 1 on YouTube. Visit MJBA.net for more details. You're not high. You're listening to the Russ Belleville Show. But I'm getting some very negative reports coming out of Colorado as to what's happening. Okay, well, maybe you're high, too. It's time for Cannabis Facts about teen drug use from Robert Platchorn's TheSilverTour.org. This message is supported by our donors and Hemp Inc., a public company poised to lead America's hemp revolution at HempInc.com. A recent survey by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control indicates that in states that have legalized medical marijuana, the rate of marijuana consumption among high school students has not increased. In fact, in legal states like Colorado, teen use has actually decreased significantly. It's simply no longer a big deal for teenagers in legal states. This was Cannabis Facts from thesilvertour.org, an educational nonprofit supported by our donors and Hemp Inc., a public company poised to lead America's hemp revolution at hempinc.com. begins with ACT. The Rush Belleville Show features the stories of hardworking grassroots activists working for an end to prohibition in today's activist agenda.
All right, folks, as we mentioned earlier, today is the 40th anniversary of the release of the Schaefer Commission report, uh, the one that uh, recommended decriminalization of marijuana to President Nixon and the one that President Nixon promptly threw in the garbage and then started the war on drugs that we're all enjoying today. Here to talk about it is someone who was there for the release of that report and someone for whom that report's release must have been incredibly good news at the time. Keith Strop, the founder of the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Law, from Washington, D.C. Hi, Keith. How's it going? It's going fine. Nothing I'd rather talk to you about than the National Commission on Marijuana and Drug Abuse. I think it was the single most important development in the last 40 years. Yeah, and this is back when they spelled marijuana with an H. <laughs> well, they tried. <laughs> most people didn't, but uh, you're, tr- you're right. The actual report was spelled with an H. Uh, maybe that's why we didn't get it uh, decriminalized, because uh, he must have thought we were talking about some other drug. <laughs> they did. They didn't realize it was that same drug that caused all those Mexicans to go crazy. Yeah. So, uh, of course, when you founded Normal, it was uh, 1970, 1971 when we get the f- official paperwork. So, you know, you can decide on which date's the official date or whatever. But since 1970, you've been fighting this. And so for, you know, two years in, two and a half years in, to have the federal government come back with a report that says basically what you'd been saying all those years, how'd that make you feel? Well, I'll I'll be honest with you, uh, it was a surprise, because when the commission was first created, uh, we expected that it was simply going to to be a group of uh, old white men who were going to say the status quo was working fine, leave things alone. Keep in mind that uh, this was a 13-member congressional-created committee. Four of the members were chosen by Congress from among themselves, that is, two members of the House of Representatives and two senators. But nine of the members were handpicked by former President Nixon uh, to serve on the commission. So uh, obviously we presumed that they had picked people who would reinforce Nixon's anti-marijuana position. So our expectations were pretty low when that commission started their work. And in fact, uh, the first the first exchange I had with the commission, uh, Normal had only been in existence a few months, and I read that they were going to hold their hearing in Washington, D.C., and uh, I sort of naively sent a letter to the the uh, staff director saying, uh, hi, my name's Keith Strop. Uh, I recently founded a group called Normal, and we'd like to testify at your hearing. I was uh, young and naive enough that I didn't realize uh, uh, the unlikely aspect of being invited to testify. But in any event, within just a couple of days, I got a note back from the executive director saying, uh, we're really not interested in hearing from you. Mm-hmm. Well, at that phase, I thought, well, I, you know, I can't be deterred totally. So I had been working closely with former Attorney General Ramsey Clark at the time. And Ramsey, in fact, had been Attorney General only a few years earlier before that. So he was still a prominent American. And I had been working with him to get normal up and running. So I went back to Ramsey Clark and said, Ramsey, would you be willing to testify on our behalf if we can get you invited. And uh, he said, sure, I'd be happy to. So I get back in touch with the commission and said, well, how about this? Former Attorney General Ramsey Clark would like to testify on our behalf. And sure enough, within a day or two, I had a note back saying, uh, Mr. Strop, we're not interested in hearing from you or from Mr. Clark. (laughs) And at that that point, I simply went to the media. And uh, naturally, the media wasn't particularly concerned about whether the commission wanted to hear from normal because nobody had heard of normal at the time, but they were a little surprised that they weren't interested in hearing from a man who just a couple of years earlier had been uh, the attorney general of the United States. And so 
there were major stories in the Washington Post and the New York Times saying, uh, Commission refuses to hear from former Attorney General Clark. Within a few hours, the chairman of the commission, Governor Raymond Schaefer, former Pennsylvania Governor Raymond Schaefer, was on the phone to Ramsey Clark apologizing and inviting him to testify mm -hmm. indeed at the first hearing. And even more than that, uh, within a couple of days, I had a letter from the staff director inviting me to testify on behalf of Normal. Now, they didn't invite me to testify at the main hearing here in Washington, D.C., but nonetheless, they scheduled me to testify at a hearing a few months later in San Francisco. And um, it's uh, as the story goes on, it's the first time I had a chance to meet Michael Aldrich and uh, poet Allen Ginsberg, who were there testifying on behalf of a group called LIMAR, mm -hmm. which was an earlier legalization group that eventually morphed into to Amorphia, and Amorphia subsequently merged with Normal, so there was a long history there. And also, at a hearing in Chicago later that year, the commission held, I had the chance to meet for the first time Guy Archer and Frank Fioramonte, two young lawyers from New York, who were working on a project they had established with the Bar Association to try to legalize marijuana, and they ended up converting it into New York Normal, and indeed, before that decade was up, they had decriminalized minor marijuana offenses in New York State. So, at any event, um, when they started, we didn't expect much out of the commission, but uh, before too long, we began to hear stories that uh, they were not as close-minded as we had thought, and that there might be some hope for this commission after all. Mm, yeah, so it must have been a pleasant surprise when you got the, the news from the commission that they had recommended decriminalization. And I think it's important to uh, underscore as well, it wasn't just decriminalization for personal possession, but also for uh, small transfers. Is that is that right? Yes, that's right. What the commission actually recommended was uh, the elimination of all criminal penalties, all penalties, period, for the possession and use of marijuana and for the not-for-profit transfers of small amounts of marijuana between adults. Now, it's interesting where that came from. Uh, somewhere during the course of that first year, I had developed enough of a friendship with a couple of members of the commission. Uh, in, in particular, Dr. Tom Ungerleiter from UCLA was someone we developed a friendship with. Um, and I learned that, in fact, they had held a number of private sessions in which they had invited adults who smoked marijuana to attend those sessions and to smoke in front of the commissioner. Oh, wow. Realized these were mostly older white men. Most of them had never seen a marijuana cigarette in their life, uh, nor had they ever seen anyone who was smoking marijuana. So they didn't have any basis to evaluate the experience. And mm -hmm. someone had the foresight and the courage to say, well, then why don't we invite some marijuana smokers in? Uh, frankly, <laughs> I think today people would be afraid to do that for yeah. fear that somehow the government would come in and bust them all or something. But at the time, they did. And I think, obviously, what they decided after experiencing what it was like to see people smoking marijuana is that it was no big deal. And they also learned that where do you get your marijuana? Well, what the, what the smokers told them is that uh, we all buy it on the black market or we grow a few plants ourselves, but we also share it among our friends on a not-for-profit basis. And, of course, that's still true today. How many times do we go to a social event and we throw a couple of joints in our pocket because we know there'll be marijuana there, but we want to share. We want to share our good sure. marijuana with our friends who have their good marijuana. So uh, by the time the Marijuana Commission report was actually issued in March of 72, uh, we were by then expecting that it might well be a pretty good report. 
we were hoping it was going to recommend full legalization. And when it came out and did not, when it came out and just simply recommended decriminalizing the marijuana smoker and decriminalizing minor not-for-profit transfers, uh, we actually had an internal debate for a month or so at normal, unsure as to whether we should complain about what we did not receive or whether we should celebrate what we had received. And, of course, after just a, a few days of kicking it back and forth, I think we all came to our senses and realized that, uh, this report was, in fact, a incredibly significant step forward in the public policy debate on marijuana. It's the first and only uh, national commission we've ever had in this country to focus on marijuana policy. And the idea that it was handpicked by uh, an anti-marijuana zealot, Richard Nixon, and yet they still came back and essentially agreed with our basic position that there's nothing wrong with the responsible use of marijuana. Uh, it was a godsend indeed. And the second part of that, I should add, is that the commission itself went out of business as soon as they completed their two-year report. There were no provisions in the section of the Controlled Substances Act that had created the commission. There were no provisions for them to take that report and try to implement it at the state level. So Normal was the only group around to do that. And indeed, as a young, uh, idealistic public interest organization, we were only too happy to take that report and to pick some good witnesses from around the country. And we basically went around, and if we could identify any state legislator in any state who was willing to introduce a marijuana decriminalization proposal, we would fly witnesses out to support that proposal at no cost to the legislator or to the legislature and make sure that, uh, that they were not embarrassed by introducing the bill. And in fact, uh, they came away feeling uh, that it was a good thing they had done. Mm. Now, the first several, of course, didn't get passed, and we weren't sure which states were going to adopt it and which weren't, but there were a number of states considering it in 72 and 73. As it turned out, Oregon was the first state to finally adopt the version of decriminalization in 1973. But by 1978, we had, we had adopted decriminalization in a total of 11 states. And uh, at the time, we thought the wind was behind our back and that uh, there was no stopping this. And within just a few years, we expected to have decriminalized marijuana throughout the country. The reality was that we were unaware, but the mood of the country was becoming far more conservative by the end of the 1970s, and we didn't win another statewide victory. The last state to win that we won uh, during the 70s was Nebraska in, I believe, 77. It might have been 78. We didn't win another single statewide victory until 1996 when California adopted legal, uh, the legal medical use of marijuana. We went 18 years without a statewide victory. Uh, but again, it wasn't that we were doing anything wrong. It was that the mood of the country had turned against us, and about all we could do was keep our head below the firing line. Yeah. Fortunately, starting in about 1990, as you're familiar with those various polling surveys, um, we can demonstrate that the mood of the country began to come back in our direction, and it's been a steady but slow climb in our direction ever since. And if it continues for another three or four or five years, I think without question, we're going to have a handful of states that will have fully legalized marijuana in this country. All right. Interview from 2012, out March 22nd, I believe, the 40th anniversary of the Schaefer Commission report. 
Wow, ima- imagine how different a landscape we would have if President Nixon had followed that report and decriminalized marijuana as Governor Schaefer recommended. How many more people would be alive? How many more people would have never gotten a criminal record? It matters who you vote for. All right, stay tuned. We got a radical rant coming up next. More from W's Drug Czar on the marijuana industry. This is the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. When you are starting up a medical cannabis business, you want a fired-up lawyer who understands the needs of cannabis consumers. The law office of Lauren Vasquez is your fired-up lawyer for the cannabis industry. Visit her website, fireduplawyer.com, or call 1-855-MMJ-LAWS for more information. That's 855-665-5297 for Lauren Vasquez, your fired-up lawyer, or email fireduplawyer at gmail.com. You're not high. You're listening to the Russ Belleville Show. Grandchildren now don't write a thank you for the Christmas presents. They're walking on their pants with their cap on backwards, listening to the enema man, the Snoopy Snoopy poop dog, and they don't like them. Okay, maybe you're high, too. Warning. It's taken on this show are larger than they appear. Do not try this at home. These people are professionals. <coughs> or at least they... Amy to say that. <laughs> Far out, man. I haven't seen a bong in years. <laughs> a public service message from the Russ Belleville Show. Total war against public enemy number one. Ten federal criminal penalties for the one ounce of marijuana. Marijuana is probably the most dangerous drug. Legalization is just another word for surrender. I experimented with marijuana and didn't inhale. This is not medicine. This is a cheech and chong show. Use less drugs. I am That was the point. I think it would be a mistake to leave the state. Negative reports coming out of Colorado. Don't smoke marijuana. Investors in and advocates for the legal commercial marijuana industry are waiting with bated breath for any sign from the Trump administration regarding marijuana policy. Nominations of hardline drug warrior Senator Jeff Sessions to head the Department of Justice and medical marijuana-hating Representative Tom Price to head Health and Human Services do not bode well for the continuation of the Obama administration's hands-off approach to state legal pot. Last weekend, I had the opportunity to speak at the Virginia Cannabis Conference. Delivering the keynote address was John J. Hudak, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institute who specializes in the presidency. Mr. Hudak explained how, quote, you're insane, end quote, if you think marijuana is too big or too popular, for the Trump administration to prosecute. He said, quote, If public opinion was a determinant of what our policies look like, we would have comprehensive immigration reform and universal background checks for guns. That 62 or 63% of Americans support legalization means nothing to the President of the United States. End quote. And in response to the idea that the marijuana industry is making too much money and Mr. Trump, a businessman, supports money, 
Mr. Hudak states, quote, your industry is small by any metric of American capitalism. You are a speck of dust in a clutter of dirt of American capitalism. The president is planning to repeal the Affordable Care Act. If you think that hospitals, doctors, and the pharmaceutical industry are small enough to be shaken down by the president, but the cannabis industry is too big to face the same challenge from the president, once again, you're insane. End quote. So, it is not as if the marijuana industry is Shrek, a hulking Goliath that everybody but the evil king with tiny hands loves. At this point, we're the tiny mammals in the Triassic period trying to avoid being eaten by the dinosaurs. And speaking of dinosaurs, remember George W. Bush's drug czar, John P. Walters? When we last heard from Mr. Walters circa 2007, he was telling us that pot smokers in jail are like unicorns. He said, quote, The fact is today, people don't go to jail for possession of marijuana. I know you like to pretend it does, and there's a lot of misinformation about that. But finding somebody in jail or prison for a first-time nonviolent possession of marijuana is like finding a unicorn. You find one, you'll make a big story because it doesn't exist. End quote. While Mr. Trump has signaled who his attorney general and his health and human services picks are, he's been mum on who would be his new director for the Office of National Drug Control Policy, or drugs are. But the folks from Big Rehab, writing in Alcoholism and Drug Abuse Weekly, think we're headed back to the drug war policies of President Bush. They write, quote, The drug strategy of the Trump administration is going to look a lot like that under John Walters head of the Office of National Drug Control Policy under President George W. Bush, ADAW has learned. The three key issues are prevention, treatment, and border control, end quote. Well, if Mr. Walters is returning to the post of drug czar or merely advising the Trump administration on the issue, uh, this could be a disaster for the marijuana industry. Well, today... Mr. Walters is co-authoring, along with David W. Murray, a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute and a former associate deputy director of the ONDCP, and with Brian Blake, another Hudson senior fellow and former deputy chief of staff at the ONDCP. The three of them have co-authored a piece in the Weekly Standard entitled, The Risky Business of Commercial Marijuana where they lay out all the ways in which a motivated anti-pot administration could crush the hopes of Green Rush entrepreneurs. Quote, Trafficking in illicit drugs has always been tenuous for corporations who might thereby jeopardize the reputation of their legitimate brands, the drug warriors wrote, writing that or warning that 60% nationwide support for legalization has occurred, quote, in the midst of an eight-year period where our nation was led by an administration that downplayed marijuana's threat, tacitly approved of its state-level legalization, and made no effort to enforce federal law, end quote. This teetotaling trio also chastised the press for what they call, quote, irresponsible cheerleading, end quote, for marijuana legalization. 
They refer to America's mass incarceration as a, quote, fanciful term, end quote, that was invented by legalizers who falsely claimed that the prisons were full of, quote, hapless youth caught with a joint, end quote, reviving Mr. Walter's marijuana unicorns talking point. Now, state-level legalization has been allowed to proceed thanks to the Obama administration's so-called Cole Memo, which lays out eight priorities regarding federal marijuana law enforcement. So long as the states don't allow marijuana to get to minors, enrich criminals, leave the state, cover drug trafficking, increase violence, increase drug driving, or get grown or used on public lands or federal property, the federal government would keep its hands off the states. So, as far as Walters, Murray, and Blake are concerned, the states have been in open violation of most, if not all, of those priorities. They write that, quote, the black market has thrived, end quote. And the criminals have, quote, increased their power and their criminality, end quote, under legalization. They believe that marijuana has found its way, quote, into the hands of the very young, end quote, and that the idea that legalization protects children is, quote, an outright lie, end quote. They continue, quote, <clears throat> but perhaps the biggest misrepresentation was that smoking the new high-potency industrial dope from the commercial markets was safe. Ample demonstration of this fallacy is now replete in the medical literature, including lowered IQ, increased psychotic episodes, and the creation of users more susceptible to the deadly opioid crisis. Oh, won't somebody please think of the children? So this uh, menage a trois of marijuana terror closed by warning investors about the pitfalls of the marijuana industry. They scare the entrepreneurs about the, quote, substantial security costs necessary against armed and violent criminals, end quote. They predict that submitting a marijuana company's federal taxes is, quote, tantamount to admitting criminal guilt as their corporate records document a federal crime, end quote. They even frighten these businesses with the threat of personal injury lawsuits based on, quote, major psychotic episodes to school failure to roadway fatalities, end quote, caused by marijuana. <laughs> now, in closing, this toker-hating triumvirate write that there is, quote, a new uncertainty regarding marijuana enforcement in the sharply altered political landscape created by the most recent election. Investors beware! So, do these Bush-era drug warriors know better than the cannabis industry spokespeople who keep painting a rosy picture of an industry-loving Trump administration to keep those investment dollars flowing? Or are they painting a gloomy picture of an industry-wrecking Trump administration just to obstruct the inevitable well only time will tell but you know my feelings on the issue i am not sanguine on the idea that things are going to continue going as they've been proceeding under the obama administration so many people have the mistaken impression 
that marijuana legalization has been kept hands off by the feds because it's somehow legal. And the fact is that the Obama administration quietly did everything they could to not enforce federal marijuana law. I've I've spoken to many marijuana reformers who have a dismissive attitude toward the Obama administration, that Obama didn't legalize or decriminalize or reschedule or deschedule marijuana, that Obama didn't do enough for the marijuana community. And folks, we will look back, and I'm afraid sooner rather than later, we are going to look back at the Obama administration as by far the best administration on marijuana laws that we have yet to see. I have this distinct impression that too many people don't understand how not doing anything was a major accomplishment of Barack Obama's, how not pursuing raids and investigations and lawsuits and injunctions and all the things that the Obama administration could have legally done and easily done and cheaply done to thwart the development of the marijuana industry were not done. But folks, if you're relying on that attitude to continue, on this reliance on the coal memo as being a mechanism that allows marijuana legalization rather than restricts it, as you heard in that piece, John Walters and these drug warriors are going to be making the case, and it's an easy case to make, that marijuana legalization has run afoul of the Cole Memo. Now, it hasn't run afoul of the spirit of the Cole Memo, right? Like, when the Cole Memo says that marijuana legalization shouldn't lead to kids getting marijuana, it's working in the respect that the kids aren't able to get into the marijuana shops and get and purchase legal marijuana there. But the idea that the legal marijuana isn't ending up in the hands of the kids somewhere along the chain eventually is one they're going to be able to easily poke holes in. The idea that marijuana is not leaving the borders of the state is laughable. Now, on our side, we would say, look, legalization is not to blame or marijuana being trafficked across state lines. Prohibition is. The fact that it's $3,000 or $4,000 a pound in Chicago and it's $1,200 a pound here in Oregon, that's the problem. And this was happening before legalization. It'll happen after legalization until that disparity is rectified. But to their side, they're going to say strict letter of the Cole memo. Did legalization keep pot from leaving the state? No. Boom, we have the right to bust you. And I hate to be the, the bringer of gloom and doom and, and always... Looking at the cynical side of what I think is going to happen, but I think we are in for a very difficult time. If we're going to keep and improve our marijuana laws, it's going to take activism like we haven't seen since the late 60s. It's going to take marches, and it's going to take protests and strikes and heavy-duty action, folks. Hope you're ready. I am. That's all the time we got for Hour 1. Stay tuned, those of you listening and watching live. Hour 2 is up next. Toker Talk Radio will take your calls. At 650 Eagle MJ. For everyone here at Delta 9 Studios, I'm Radical Lust. Thanks for joining us. And until next time, take care of each other, tokers. This is the Russ Belleville Show. The Russ Belleville Show is blogging and podcasting daily at radicalrust.com. Take a seat.